Carl says we're ready. So why don't we get started? Again, thank you folks for being here. Uh, excited to be back in Philly. And thank you for everyone who was praying for the time in Peru. Uh, it really did go incredibly well. Uh, very grateful for the opportunity the Lord gave me to be there. And just such a blessing to see what the Lord is doing there. Uh, just a lot of folks coming to Christ, a lot of folks growing in Christ, a lot of joy and enthusiasm in the churches. Uh, it's just a really exciting place, a uh, very exciting place. So I really consider it a privilege to be able to be there, this time a couple of weeks. Um, and they didn't get sick of me. Well, they didn't say it in my face. Obviously, very polite, so they wouldn't have said that. But anyways, it's good to be back here as well and excited for our time together tonight. So let's open with a word of prayer. And as always, we just want to invite the Lord to be present, and we want to invite the Lord to speak to us. Heavenly Father, as always, we just want to begin our time uh, by thanking you, by acknowledging how good you have been to us, and just expressing our gratitude to you for the grace that you've given us, uh, the forgiveness that has come through your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you for the hope that we find in you, uh, for the joy that we find in you. We thank you so much, Lord, for uh, bringing uh, your Holy Spirit to us, uh, pouring him out upon us, and allowing us to receive him and to be led by him and, and directed by him. And we just pray now that you would again pour out your spirit upon us, upon our time together tonight. Uh, as we take this time uh, to read your word together, to study your word together, and particularly, Lord Jesus, to talk about your return. We just pray, Lord God, that you would help us. We pray that you would help us to rightly understand what you teach us about the return of your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we know that in, in the most important issues, uh, the believing church is in full agreement, and we're so grateful to you for that. But we do realize, Lord, that in some of the secondary issues, there is a disagreement. And we just pray, Lord God, that you would really help us to do everything we can uh, to rightly read and rightly interpret and rightly apply the scriptures. More than anything else, Lord Jesus, we are just grateful that you will return and that one day you will come and that you will bring to completion uh, the work that you have started. And we are just so excited for that moment. And we look to the heavens with great anticipation and great excitement. So again, we just ask you to be here tonight, and as we take this time in your word, we pray that each one of us would be greatly encouraged. Nourish us, feed us through your word. And we ask these things, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. So the sheet that we're going to be looking at at the beginning tonight is the one that we were looking at a few weeks ago, the last time that we met. It is the sheet at the top that says the nature of of the second coming of Christ. There were two sheets on the table there, um, and so we're going to be looking first at the nature of the second coming of Christ. For those of you who were here a couple weeks ago, and I think all of you were, um, you probably recognize, hopefully recognize some of that. So we were talking about the return of Jesus Christ being a personal return. Um, as he was taken up into heaven, that is how he will come back to us. Um, only a handful of people saw him go back up to heaven, but the entire earth will see him as he returns. So that's point number two. It is a visible return. It is something that all of creation will see. It will not be something that is hidden or secret 
or something that it's possible to miss. And it will be a glorious return. It will be in power and it will be in great glory. That's how Jesus himself described it in Matthew 24. So these are things that are absolutely essential to our understanding of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And these are things that the entire believing church are in agreement over. And so we're very, very grateful for that. We always want to emphasize the things that the believing church has come to agreement on. You know, there are things that there are still disagreement over. You know, for example, the issue of baptism. You know, do you baptize an infant or do you baptize a person when they're old enough to make a profession of faith? You know, the believing church is in disagreement about that. The gift of tongues. Is that a gift that is for today or is that a gift that ceased in the first century church? So there are some issues in which the believing church is in disagreement. And one of the things that we want to always do first, as much as we can, is emphasize the things that the believing church is in agreement on. And when it comes to the return of Jesus Christ, the most important aspect of that is that he will, in fact, come again. That is what is most important. Remember, at the very beginning of our eschatology class, we talked about how the greatest hope of the New Testament, mentioned in almost every book of the New Testament, is the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. It will be personal. It will be visible. It will be glorious. These things are not disagreed upon within the believing church. However, when we get to the fourth point, this is an issue of, 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 of pretty intense disagreement, which is whether the return of Jesus Christ is a single event or whether the return of Jesus Christ is a twofold event. Now, many of us, having grown up here within American evangelicalism, have become accustomed to seeing it as a two-part event. And even though there is a lot of variation and differences in the smaller points, basically what a, a two-part theory of the return of Jesus puts forward is that there is an initial return of Jesus Christ that is often referred to as the rapture. And what they believe is that the rapture can happen at any moment. And that's why, again, the New Testament is always encouraging us to be on guard, to be alert, to be ready. So for folks who argue that the return of Jesus Christ is a two-part return, the first part is the rapture. And they say that Jesus comes part of the way to earth. All of the believers on earth are raptured or taken up to meet the Lord in the air, and then Jesus and those believers return back to heaven. So really what the rapture is for those who argue for a two-part return of Jesus Christ is Jesus comes part of the way. And once he has come part of the way, all the believers on earth are raptured up to meet him in the air, and then Jesus and the believers go back up into heaven. Now, Following that, there's a period of time. Usually that period of time is said to be seven years. There are some who argue that it will be three and a half years. So again, in the details, there is some difference. But then there is a period of time where Jesus has taken all the believers off the planet, gone back up to heaven with them. So then, as you can imagine, on earth, 
there is great, great chaos. And usually they refer to this time as the Great Tribulation. And most folks who are proponents of the two-part return would say the majority of the book of Revelation is now fulfilled in this either three-and-a-half or seven-year period because of all of the chaos that ensues once all believers have been removed from the planet. So all of the, the judgment and just, you know, the, the incredible intensity of events that John sees in the book of Revelation, a lot of folks would argue that it takes place during this time frame. Then after either three and a half or seven years is the second coming. So this is obviously the second part. The first part is the rapture, a partial coming to earth. The second part is the second coming. And this time Jesus makes his way all the way to earth. And after the events that transpire then, what begins is the thousand years, or what is often referred to as the millennium. So this is, of course, leaving a lot of details out. Um, eventually, we will get into talking to the issue of the millennium. But just so we kind of have a general idea of the basic structure of folks who believe that the return of Jesus Christ is two parts. So the question that I was putting in front of us the last time we met is, if you read the New Testament and take Scripture at face value, is seeing the return of Jesus Christ in two distinct events, is that really the most straightforward way of reading the New Testament? If you didn't already believe this, and you weren't already looking for this, if nobody had ever told you anything about the return of Jesus Christ, and you simply read the New Testament, is this what you would come to? Would you naturally see that the New Testament is clearly putting forward that the return of Jesus Christ is two separate events? Or, in fact, does a more straightforward reading of the New Testament seem to indicate that the return of Jesus Christ is not two events, but, in fact, a single event? The return of Jesus Christ, the end of this age, and the beginning of eternity. So that's kind of the question that we're kicking around. And I think from last time you probably realize, I, I do not think this is the most straightforward way of reading the New Testament. I do not think if you were to read the New Testament and you didn't already kind of have this in mind, that this is the clearest conclusion you would come to from the teachings of the New Testament about the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would argue, if you didn't already have this in mind, a more straightforward reading of the New Testament would lead you to believe it's a single event. That the church is now in a period of waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. And when he comes, everything that is spoken of in Scripture about that return will happen. This age will ultimately at that moment conclude and then eternity will begin. So that's kind of what we're considering. Is the return of Jesus Christ a two-part event, or is the return of Jesus Christ a single event?
okay? Now let me just pause here to see if there's any questions or any comments up to this point. Anything about the basic structure of the two-part theory or any comment about what I was saying in terms of what I think is a more straightforward reading of the New Testament? Any, any comments or questions either for folks who are here in person or, Carl, for folks who are on Zoom? Yeah, please. Camille, please. Hi there. Um, so, and I'm sorry because I, I joined a little late. I, I get the general gist of the two-part. Is there, like, what, what would the one-part look like? I mean, is there a way to diagram that? The simplest way is that Jesus comes and that's the end. It's super simple. Um, so in other words, this mid-period is seen differently, the Great Tribulation is seen differently, and the Millennium is seen differently. And some of that will unfold a little bit as we get further down the sheet tonight. But yeah, to me, the, the, the single part return is just this church age continues as it is, with the kingdom of God increasing and the kingdom of darkness increasing because the New Testament clearly teaches that both of those things are happening. Remember, we talked about the signs of the times. So those things continue to progress. The advancement of the gospel being preached to everyone in creation, particularly the advancement of the gospel amongst Jewish folks. But then we had some of the other more negative signs, apostasy, tribulation, um, the rise of antichrist, earthquakes, famines. So the single return of, Je the return of Jesus Christ as a single event just simply sees those things coming and would argue that the tribulation that the New Testament talks about, the tribulation that Revelation speaks of, for the most part is being seen in out the, throughout the entirety of the church age, not just in a seven-year or three-and-a-half-year window of time. But for the most part, the book of Revelation is describing the tribulation, the difficulties, the judgments of God that exist throughout the entirety of the church age, not things that only begin once Jesus has come and raptured the church up. In terms of the millennium, and this is why we're only going to be able to cover it quickly right now, in terms of the millennium, some of the proponents of a single return of Jesus Christ would argue that the millennium is on this side of his return. Now, how that actually comes about is a little different because there's two different ways of understanding that. But they would understand the millennium not as a literal thousand years, but as a figurative thousand years. And so they would see the reigning of believers right now through the new birth or the new life that comes. So it becomes a little more complicated once you try to fit these things in. But simply put, Camille, this age continues as it is right now, the church age. The kingdom of God continues to grow. The kingdom of darkness continues to grow. Both of these grow and both of these intensify and escalate until that moment of the Lord's return. And then when he comes, he brings with him the eternal reward for believers, the eternal judgment for unbelievers, and then we enter into eternity with the new heavens and the new earth coming with him. That's basically how I would explain simply 
the single event return of Jesus Christ. Does that kind of help make sense or does that confuse things more? No, that, that helps a lot. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course, of course. Any, any other questions or comments? Because I realize that once you start trying to consider one, or excuse me, two or more theories, it can become a little confusing. Um, and so probably a lot of us are, are somewhat familiar with this, just again, because this is the dominant view in American evangelical Christianity today. This is the dominant view that's taught um, in a lot of different areas of the American church today. Certainly, seeing the return of Jesus Christ as a single event is a minority position, at least in my uh, movings about in, in American Christianity, which is, is fairly limited. But most folks that you talk to would say, yeah, this is basically what they believe. They may not you know, have all the details sorted out, but this is basically what they believe. It's very rare, at least in my encounters, to find someone who believes that the return of Jesus Christ is a single event, okay? But any, any questions or comments before we press on a little bit here? Okay, so then the next thing on that sheet, that was basically the summary of the two-part view. And I apologize, Carl, do you still have these sheets from the last time we had the class for the folks on Zoom to be looking at them? Okay. I sent Okay, so hopefully they have them. Because, yeah, we're working through the sheet that says the nature of the second coming. We're under point four, single event, or in two parts. And we just did a summary of the two-part view. So then point A is the New Testament vocabulary. Now, this may initially seem a little bit technical. This is what we ended with last time. But basically, all this is saying is that the folks who adhere to a two-part return of Jesus Christ, whenever the New Testament is speaking about the return of Jesus Christ, they basically have to decide, is this speaking of the rapture, or is this speaking of the second coming? And most of them can fairly confidently divide those passages into those two groups. It's not something that is, you know, in their mind, difficult to do. So, when we're looking there at this New Testament vocabulary section, the passages that are listed under the word rapture, these are passages that folks who adhere to the two-part theory say are referring to the rapture, that first partial coming of Christ to earth, taking all the believers to meet him in the air, and then going back to heaven. So these are not passages that critics of the two-part theory are assigning to them. They themselves are saying these verses speak of the rapture. Then that second group, the second coming, again, the folks who adhere to a two-part theory, these are passages, they say, that are not referring to the rapture, but are referring to the second return of Jesus Christ, what they call the second coming. Hopefully this is clear, because the, the naming gets a little complicated. But all this point is basically saying is that there is nothing in the New Testament vocabulary itself that makes a distinction between the rapture and the second coming. So in other words, there isn't one word that the New Testament exclusively uses only to speak of the rapture. And 
also there isn't a unique word that the New Testament uses only to speak of the second coming. Because what you have listed there are the three most common words used to speak of the return of Jesus Christ. The word coming, or parousia, or perusia. Some of you are probably familiar with that because of a lot of the American literature that speaks of the return of Jesus Christ uses the word perusia. And that just simply means coming. Another one that's used very frequently is the word revealing. And that's apocalypsis. Uh, for Spanish speakers, you know, that's apocalypsis is the name of the book of Revelation. That just means to reveal. And then the third is epiphania, from which we get our English word epiphany, to have something all of a sudden you know, appear to us kind of out of nowhere, right, Ted? Is that what an epiphany is? Yes. So these are three words that the New Testament uses frequently to describe the return of Jesus Christ. And we're not going to look up all of those verses, but basically what that shows is that there are times that the word perusia or parousia refers to the rapture as well as to the second coming. There are times that the word apocalypsis or apocalypsis refers to the rapture as well as the second coming. Then there are times that the word epiphania refers to both the rapture and the second coming. So all this is saying is that there is nothing unique in the New Testament vocabulary that makes this distinction. So again, kind of what we're saying is, is this obvious? Or are we simply assuming this and kind of reading it in? Now, if there was one word that was always used to describe the rapture for the proponents of the two-part theory, and another word that was always used to describe the second coming, to me, they'd have a much stronger position. Because you say, every time that the Apostle Paul is talking about the rapture, he uses this word. But every time he's talking about the second coming, he uses that word. But the problem is, as you can see, that distinction is not made at all with the vocabulary. For those who argue for a two-part theory, Paul uses all three of the main words to describe either of them. So you can't support a two-part theory from the vocabulary that the New Testament uses. There's nothing distinct in the vocabulary to say, hey, what the New Testament is really teaching is Jesus comes again twice. There's nothing there whatsoever. And again, asking yourself the question, if you weren't already taught this, if you weren't already assuming this, would you necessarily say this is the most obvious understanding of what the New Testament teaches about the return of Jesus? Okay. So basically, that's all that first A point is making about New Testament vocabulary. There's nothing unique in the three most common words that are used to describe the return of Jesus Christ, that one word is always used for the rapture, and another word is always used for the second coming. They're used interchangeably. And so then you kind of have to look more carefully at the context to try to decide if you are adhering to this, wait a second now, is this talking about the rapture, or is this talking about the second part of the second coming? Okay? Does that make sense? I know it looks a little technical because I put some Greek words there for you, but it's a pretty basic point, hopefully, and hopefully I'm doing an okay job making it clear. Does this point make sense? Yeah, please, Ephraim. It doesn't sound like it yet. 
uh, what you say is one event to the well, that's what the I believe the New Testament teaches. And the Great Tribulation is just one event. Basically, for the second coming. what the two-part theory says is that the return of Jesus Christ is in two parts. The first part is called the rapture. Mm -hmm. Then there's a gap, a time period of either seven years or three and a half years, and then he comes again. And what proponents of this two-part understanding of the return say is that that in between time whether they say it's seven years or three and a half years this is what they usually call the great tribulation so what we're saying is that for the most part you're probably already assuming this and then reading this into the new testament but if you had a completely and it's always so hard to try to imagine this but if you had a completely blank slate in terms of what you thought about the return of Jesus Christ. If you read the New Testament, I do not think this would be the most obvious understanding of it, but in fact that it would be a single event. So what we would understand as the Great Tribulation is just the hardship and the difficulty that the entirety of the church has faced and will continue to face until Jesus Christ comes again. The majority of the judgments and the calamities that are described in the book of Revelation are things that the entirety of the church will face throughout the entirety of the church age. So that these are things that are happening right now. They will increase as we get closer to the return of Christ, but then these things will come to an end when he returns. So they don't begin at the rapture, they began at the beginning of the church age. I mean, look at how much the church was persecuted in the book of Acts. Hmm. I mean, Stephen was killed, you know, within a couple of years after the death of Jesus Christ. You know, Christians were being thrown in prison. Christians were being martyred. The persecution of the Roman Empire. So what I would argue is that the tribulation that the New Testament talks about is not something that's unique to a short period of time in the future. In fact, it's something that at different levels of intensity the entire church will face throughout the entire church age. That's what I would argue. Now, eventually, we're going to get, have to get to the issue of the millennium, and that's even more complicated. But basically, what I would argue is the millennium that the book of Revelation is speaking of. And the crazy thing is, the passage on the millennium is six verses. Six verses in Revelation chapter 20. That's it. And in those six verses, the word millennium, I think, is only used three times. So just imagine this incredibly complex theology that has mushroomed from a six-verse passage where the word itself is only used three times. It's never used in the Old Testament. The word millennium is never used in the Old Testament. It's never used anywhere else in the New Testament other than those six verses of Revelation. So we do have to make sense of it because obviously those six verses are in our Bible. We can't just ignore them. But what I would argue is that the millennium is not a thousand years at some point in the future. The millennium, again, is something that we are experiencing right now. But we'll have to unpack that more when we talk about it. So basically, Ephraim, what we are saying is, is a single return of Jesus Christ a more straightforward way of reading the New Testament? And if it is, this great tribulation is the suffering that the church is experiencing right now and that the church has experienced since the church was born on Pentecost, 
and that the church will continue to experience until Jesus Christ returns. Okay? Does that help to kind of clear that up? I think for me it makes a lot of sense because when I read that part, it's so hard to understand. <laughs> and uh, in that way, uh, I feel so happy that it's, it's a straightforward to understand. And uh, thank you for that part that you explained it. I think it's uh, because when I read it so many times, it's just like it's in the air. It's so hard to understand. And it makes sense that way, yeah, for me. Yeah, I shared it a little bit last time, but you know, when I was in college and, and, and early years after that, I, w I was a huge Hal Lindsey fan. I don't know how many of you remember Hal Lindsey. Hal Lindsey, an incredible man of God, a, a great saint of the Lord, an incredibly strong advocate of the inerrancy of the Word of God, uh, utmost respect for him as a teacher, as a man of God. I don't know if he's been called home with the Lord or if he's still alive, but he wrote a lot of books. You know, the late great planet Earth, Satan is alive and well on planet Earth, the rapture. And he is a strong proponent of this way of understanding the return of Jesus Christ. And in my college years and, and, and a couple years after that, you know, like Ephraim was saying, I tried very hard to understand it, but it was always way too complicated for me to ever grasp. I always felt like Hal Lindsey understood it, and he was certainly putting it forward in his books, but I felt like I could never quite pull all the strings together. Then when I went to seminary, they taught the return of Jesus Christ as a single event. So they kind of just like, you know, said, okay, this is there, but we believe the New Testament actually teaches the return of Jesus Christ at this point is a single event. And then all of a sudden I was like, wow, that makes so much more sense. The entire church is just waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. And when he comes, that's it. He brings eternity with him. Final judgment, all the new heavens and the new earth come with him. We are given our rewards because of what Christ has done for us, and we begin eternity. That just, to me, yes, obviously a lot more simple. But to me, it was like all of a sudden now I feel like I can track so much more with that understanding of the New Testament rather than trying to put this in there. So Ephraim, you know, what you just said is, is my own personal testimony as well, that when I was introduced to the concept of the return of Jesus Christ being a single event, I was like, oh, that makes a lot more sense to me. And it's a lot easier, I think, to read the New Testament. Now, of course, it has its challenges. You know, what you do with the millennium, that becomes really challenging. You know, and the thing to keep in mind is, you know, whenever the believing church continues to be in disagreement over an issue, it's probably because each of the different groups has some really strong biblical evidence to support them. You know, the issues that are kind of a slam dunk, you know, it's because at this point there isn't a lot of strong evidence for an opposing position, you know. Is Jesus Christ the only way to heaven? Yeah, I mean, the believing church is pretty much in agreement on that. Did Jesus Christ come in the flesh? Yeah, the believing church is in agreement on it. So anytime you have an issue where the believing church is in disagreement, you know, you enter that with a lot of humility saying, okay, there's probably some pretty good arguments in the different camps. Otherwise, you know, some of these positions would have disappeared by now. But the fact that these positions continue probably is because there's some pretty good biblical evidence to back them up. 
So particularly when we get to the issue of the millennium, we'll see that each one of them has some significant challenges. But, you know, ultimately we read the scriptures and try to make our own best decision. So, but thank you for asking that, Ephraim. A question on Zoom? Yeah, please. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So my big question is, what's the significance of three and a half years if we're dealing with uh, the the rapture and the second coming simultaneously. What's what's the meaning of that? Where does it, how does it fit? That I don't understand. Well, just because Eric, within within the camp of people who divide the return of Jesus Christ, there are those who put the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation. So, in other words, those are the folks who would say that. The rapture happens, and then there's seven years of tribulation. These are called pre-tribulationists, or for short, pre-tribs. That's where the seven years come from. I don't think it's as common as it used to be, but there are some who are mid-trib. So what they believe is that the rapture occurs in the middle of the tribulation. So that's why there's three and a half years between the rapture and the second coming. This is just showing a little bit of the variance within the camp that believes the return of Jesus Christ is two-part. So there's the pre-tribs, that's at least what they used to call them, who believe there's the rapture, then there's the full seven-year tribulation. Then the mid-tribs would say the tribulation starts and the rapture actually occurs in the middle of it, three and a half years in, so then there's three and a half years that left. But this seven and this three and a half are basically the gap between the rapture and the second coming. And that's just to show there's a little bit of variance in the folks who adhere to this understanding. So in that case, you're kind of splitting the tribulation instead of saying the rapture inaugurates the tribulation. Does, does that help to answer that, Eric? Not at all. Really? <laughs> really, really. So I, get, I, I, I get how the... I get how the rapture and the second coming, if you divide it into two, how you can have that three and a half years in there. That's no, that I understand. What I don't understand is in Revelation, there's a three and a half year thing. Of, what's that? Well, Revelation deals with time a, a couple of different ways. A couple places it talks about a period of 42 months. A couple places it talks about uh, 1,260 days. A couple places it talks about a time, a times, and half a time. So the way that Revelation speaks of these different time periods is a little bit different. Those are the three designations that it uses. Right now is not the time <laughs> to talk about the nitty-gritty of this. What we're trying to do now is just kind of get a general overview without diving into the distinction between the seven and the three and a half. The, bi the, the bigger, more general question we're asking right now is, is the return of Jesus two-part or is it a single event? And all this is doing is trying to give just a general structure of the two-part theory if it's not one that you're familiar with. But at this point, Eric, I would say let's hold off on trying to you know, parse out the details of Revelation and how Revelation deals with 
time deals with the seven year or the three and a half year, if that's okay. All right? Okay. Yeah, Richard, please. I was going to ask Eric's question from the perspective of the book of Daniel towards the book of Daniel, but uh, as, as a part two, my first question, though, is just a very general one. And since I think that's where you want the emphasis. Um, so uh, in, as, as a scientist, uh, the, you know, there is the idea that you have you take you start off with the simplest hypothesis. Um, I, you know, I won't use scientific jargon, but there, there, there is a principle you start off with the simplest hypothesis to begin with until you're forced to consider complexity. Um, so uh, are you distinguishing um, the, the kind of broad biblical argument for taking the simplest view and therefore you would exclude a particular text that actually has a more complex view. So as an example, Isaiah 61, 1, where there, are, there is this hint of two comings, and Jesus only quotes part of Isaiah 61, 1 uh, when he announces his, his mission effectively in the synagogue. I uh, don't have chapter and verse right now, but I think you know what I'm referring to. Um, but he clearly takes a verse and splits it into two in other words he's not um there isn't a, in one sense there a simple perspective but that's an individual verse where uh the holy spirit of you know inspires isaiah to write it a particular way and jesus interprets it uh and makes it clear that there are two different events so that's the emphasis on a particular verse but it seems to me that you, correct me obviously if I'm wrong, but you're trying to lay out broader principles about interpretation of, of the entirety of scripture rather than a specific verse. Yeah, Richard, I'd say that's true just initially. Yeah. Because again, absolutely. I mean, scripture invites us to try to get the broad strokes, to try to understand you know, the major themes on a very general introductory level. But then, of course, Scripture invites us to do a much deeper dive and then look at you know, passages and verses and even phrases and then ask that question like you were saying, do these passages and verses and phrases, in fact, line up with my understanding on a broader general level. So there absolutely is a place for that. So, so yeah, Eric, let me make clear, you know, your question is an excellent one. And there is a, absolutely a place, you know, to do that deeper dive and look at sort of the time markers that the book of Revelation gets us, gives us. All I'm saying is for right now, that's a little bit further than we are in our discussion in this, in this Bible study. So definitely, Richard, you know, there is, I think, an initial attempt that we're making to try to understand, you know, the broad general teaching of Scripture without necessarily doing, you know, a deep dive into every passage. You know, the passage of Scripture that has been alluded to is Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Whatever, whatever Revelation is doing with time, it is 100% connected to and dependent on Daniel 9, 24 to 27. The problem is, 
This is one of the most unclear and ambiguous passages in the entire Hebrew Bible. And there, anyone who says they fully understand what the prophet was being told in these verses is kidding themselves. And so, you know, what I would say initially, if you are trying to say anything authoritative based on an unambiguous understanding of these verses, I'm really, really hesitant to take you seriously. Because I sat under an incredible Hebrew scholar who went through this passage verse by verse, and he just kept saying, we're not sure what this means. This could be referring to that. This could be referring to that. You know, there's one phrase in here we don't even know for sure. Is it referring to Satan or is it referring to Jesus? That's how ambiguous <laughs> these verses come when you try to do that deeper dive. So again, but this is what we said. When the believing church is in disagreement, it's not because they're not taking the word of God seriously. It's not because they're not studying the scripture. It's not because, you know, one camp is just being lazy or one camp is just saying we don't want to deal with this. It's because this is really ultimately very challenging stuff to, you know, grab hold of with authority. So when it comes to the time frame that Revelation is speaking of, absolutely is dependent on this. But what Daniel is being told in these verses is incredibly difficult to unpack. And I would say at best you can again only get maybe a general sense of what is happening here. But absolutely, Richard, you know, I agree with what you're saying. And, you know, I think what happens is if you take sort of what I'm saying is a more straightforward reading of the New Testament, and what I'm arguing is that a more straightforward reading of the New Testament is that the return of Jesus Christ is a single event. That's kind of what we're starting with here. And actually what we're doing is we're kind of assuming exactly the opposite. Because most of the American evangelical church is already assuming because of what has been taught them that the return of Jesus Christ is a two-part event. So kind of what I'm doing here is saying, well, let's, let's try not to assume this. Let's just, you know, for the sake of our time together tonight, let's assume the opposite. Let's assume that maybe the return of Jesus Christ is a single event. Is that, in fact, a more straightforward way of reading the New Testament? But, again, there absolutely is a place to do a much more, you know, intense study of specific passages and then try to see, do those either undermine or support the position? And ultimately, Richard and Eric, both of you, you know, what you're going to find is that there are some passages that very strongly support a certain understanding and others that are tough to make it fit. That's why there continues to be disagreement. So, you know, again, what I would say is, you know, I don't believe this is what the New Testament teaches. But at the end of the day, I could be 100% wrong. You know, this is not something that is necessary for salvation. This is not something that I would go to the mat over. This is not something that I would, you know, disrupt fellowship with a sister or brother in Christ over. You know, I'm telling you what I believe is a better understanding from the New Testament, but believe me, I'm 100% ready to say this may be absolutely right. And a single event return of Jesus may actually be a wrong way of understanding it. You know, and one, of course, great example of that is look at the Old Testament. You know, all of those who were waiting for Messiah to come, they were convinced it was going to be a single event. They were. And so when Jesus didn't fit, you know, the warrior king 
son of David who was going to sit on David's throne and smash his enemies, they're like, wait a second, Jesus, you're not the Messiah. You're not it. You know, what they couldn't quite do was figure out, you know, how does the suffering servant of Isaiah, you know, how does the scorned shepherd of Zechariah, you know, combine with the warrior son of David? And obviously what we came to see is that, you know, there's a first coming of Christ, humble, fulfilling all of those prophecies of the one who would be rejected, the one who would suffer, and then there is a second coming. So, you know, now, of course, two-part folks would say, well, look, you're doing the same thing. You're saying the New Testament seems to teach a single return of Jesus Christ, but isn't it possible it's going to be split? And I'd 100% say, yeah, absolutely, it's possible. But I don't think that's what the New Testament teaches. I don't think it is. But yeah, none of this stuff at this point is anything I'm going to go to the mat over. What I will go to the mat over, what I will absolutely separate you know, from others is, is Jesus Christ coming again? If someone tells you the New Testament does not teach that Jesus Christ is coming again, absolutely. That is an unshakable foundation of New Testament doctrine. We cannot in any way accept that. It's not metaphorical, it's not symbolic, it's not allegorical. It is absolutely a visible, bodily, glorious return of Jesus Christ. So yeah, definitely, Richard, the points you're bringing up are excellent ones. And there is a place, you know, to do a deeper dive. There, there is a place, 100%, to try to make sense of what Daniel was told in those verses. And Eric, absolutely, 100%, there is a place to try to make sense of the time markers that the book of Revelation gives us. And all I'm saying is for right now, tonight, we're not going to go that way yet. We can in this class if folks want to. What we're going to try to do is just put in front of folks possibly a different way of understanding the return of Jesus. Not as a two-part event, but is it possible that the New Testament is teaching us it's a single event? I think, I think that's very possible. That's all I'm saying. So, Richard, does that kind of help answer that or not really? Yeah, no, I, I just, I, I, I think, um, sorry, it sounds like I'm echoing a lot, but uh, no, it was just helpful to see what, um, what your goals are at this current time, you know, because, uh, as I say, you know, in, 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 in trying to find truth, sometimes you're forced to, um, to, to go deeper, but going back to Isaiah 61, 1, I mean, Jesus is that scripture and the interpretation right now is consistent with all the, everything that's on that whiteboard. There's a first coming and there's a second coming, but there's no detail as to whether it's two, it, the second coming is in two parts or one part, just that if you just take that scripture as is, uh, it's consistent with, with all the options that are on the whiteboard because they're all ultimately deal with the fact the, the the one you're going to go to the mat on, the uh, that he is coming back, hundred percent. Um, and again, you know what I would say, Richard is most of what makes me uncomfortable about this is not on the board. You know, when you do a much deeper dive into the guys who are supporting this, the much more to me radical conclusions that they come up with, that's what kind of forced me to backpedal and say, well, wait a second, Are, is, is that really what you're saying? Because if, if this is how you got there, then I think maybe we made a misstep. 
Because, you know, a lot of these guys are saying is that there are two completely separate salvation purposes of God for Jews and Gentiles. Yeah, yeah, Dave. Sorry, let me just interrupt. I, I assumed I, I missed. I, I got the the arrows muddled. I assumed there was also an arrow that included uh, a um, the 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 position that you are advocating as well. So that's what I meant. Was that um, oh, oh, oh. yeah, that it was consistent with a, a single event, which I, which I'm you're planning to expand on. That's what I meant by saying yeah. that that scripture is consistent with with all the different positions, including the minority one that you're going to expand on. I see, I see. Yeah, my apologies. No, 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 not all. Because obviously, there's so many things that we can study in Scripture that we're all just going to nod our heads and say amen to. And, and praise God for that. I mean, praise God for that. You know, the, the, when we talk about something like this, one of the things I just want to keep emphasizing is the vast majority of doctrinal truth the believing church is not in disagreement on. Praise God for that. I mean, we could have Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, Pentecostal, Baptist, Charismatic, you know, each one sitting here, and the vast majority of truth that we would be teaching from the Bible, every single one of them would be nodding their heads. Because, you know, Presbyterians probably wouldn't shout amen. Pentecostals would probably shout amen. But, I mean, in other words... You know, what we're diving into right now is relatively rare, which is the teachings of Scripture that the believing church is in disagreement over. And as soon as you dive into that, you're going to have comments like Eric and Richard that are necessary and excellent comments, but they become, you know, very challenging to try to entertain because we're not in agreement on these things. And we are, particularly with Richard and Eric, you know, trying to, you know, look at a general, very simple, having in mind some of the much more deep and complex passages. And that, yeah, that's part of what Scripture invites us to do. But, you know, I just want to assure everyone who's sitting here in person and everyone who's on Zoom, you know, the vast majority of truth that comes to us through the Word of God, the believing church is in agreement on. The believing church is in agreement on. And there are just decades of teaching we can give that create no controversy, that create no disagreement, because that's how clear God has made his word. And we are so grateful to him for that. So what we are choosing to do right now is to dive into something that the believing church disagrees on. And I hope you never hear me say, you know, I'm right and they're wrong. I think what you will hear me say, hopefully, is I think this is right, based on my study of Scripture, based on the teaching of Scripture that I have received. But you guys, search the Scriptures yourself and make your own conclusions based on your own study of Scripture. And at the end of the day, on the doctrines that are necessary for salvation, we're not going to be in disagreement on it. We're just not because they're that incredibly clear. And yeah, there may be some secondary issues that we take a little differently. And hopefully what that will never do, do is divide us as the body of Christ. You know, because one of the things that the church, unfortunately, is great at doing is letting differences divide. You look at the history of the church, Repeatedly, differences have brought 
division. You know, in the 1990s, I heard there were a thousand different Protestant denominations in North America. I can't even fathom that. A thousand different Protestant denominations. And each time there was a split, both sides were convinced that they had to go their separate ways, or at least one side was. And so, you know, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. Years ago, Deborah uh, Centurion, now Deborah Malloy, asked a question. Well, how do you know, you know, what is necessary for salvation? How do you know what issues you absolutely don't compromise on and, and what issues you say, well, no, we can agree to disagree on that? And that's, of course, that's the million-dollar question. Um, but I think for most of us, it's clear what is essential. It's clear what we are not going to compromise. And praise God, there is agreement on that. And so the reason why, you know, Eric asks a question and then I give an answer and he's not satisfied is at least in part because we're not diving into it at the level that we can, 100%. And even what Richard was saying as well, you know, we are now entering into things where there is disagreement. And what I'm doing initially is just kind of challenging us. Because, again, I could be wrong, but my understanding is that most of us just kind of assume something like this. And all I'm asking right now is, is that really the most straightforward way of reading the New Testament description of the return of Jesus Christ? Maybe at the end of the day you say, yeah, it is. But for me, my own experience was I tried to read the New Testament this way, and of course the pertinent Old Testament passages as well, but it never seemed to make the most sense of enough passages. And then, like Ephraim was saying, you know, for me, all of a sudden, I considered it as a single event, and that seemed to make a lot more sense. But, yeah, there's definitely room for discussion. So thank you both, Eric and Richard, for raising those issues and, you know, giving us the opportunity to say these things. But more comments or questions? Seema, you have a question? Um, no, a comment. So, oh, okay. um, you know, your first scripture, First Thessalonians, you've just said 4 to 15. Mm -hmm. But if you read that whole passage... And you can read it with whichever framework you want in mind. But if you were to read it um, just from 14, um, 1 Thessalonians 4, from 14 to 18, and just imagine the imagery that comes as you read it, it's the Lord comes, he takes his people, the end. Right? That's the way I read it. Now, because this is because of my many conversations with my husband. The other I've corrupted her. It's not her fault. <laughs> but, but the other... Part is, you know, um, even to Richard's point about Isaiah 61 1, which is, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, I've come to proclaim the good news. Luke and then, chapter 4, that's, Luke, that's where yeah. it's being fulfilled by Jesus. And he, and he stops at, um, well, wherever he stops, uh, uh, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then he says that this scripture has been fulfilled. So that's the first coming. And then there's the second coming. And then if we were to keep counting, then there's a third coming. Um, and then there's a fourth coming. And I'm not sure the scripture really, it takes a lot of imagination to start counting all the comings because there's the rapture, then he comes back again, then there's the thousand year, then he comes back again. And you know, that's just too many comings. I, 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 I like the, you know, you read the first Thessalonian, he came, he's already come, he's died on the cross, we are now his children, and he's coming again to take us, there'll be a trumpet, That'll sound, and the dead shall be raised, and those who have fallen asleep will precede us. 
Um, that's what First Thessalonians, there's so much comfort in that, you know, um, so I agree with Ephraim. And, and yeah, you know, that, that whole section on vocabulary, I almost didn't put it in because we will read a couple of those passages in their entirety. Uh, the Second Thessalonians 1 passage. The Second Thessalonians 2 passage we already have. Some of you may recognize that that's the passage that deals with the man of lawlessness. But certainly the First Thessalonians 4 passage, we will read those in their entirety. You know, all, all point A, it's sort of maybe way too complex a way to just say that there is no distinct New Testament vocabulary that's used to only describe the rapture or only describe the second coming. That, that's, that's all that's saying. And maybe, you know, I would have been better served just to, to skip that. But anyhow, because really all these are doing is just kind of giving us maybe the challenge of considering something different. That's all. So let's jump down to point B. Tribulation and the presence of the church on earth. Almost all two-part folks do not believe that the church will be on earth for the entirety of what they call the Great Tribulation. Now, there are some, like we were talking about the mid-trib, believe that the church will be there for part of it, but before it gets really, really bad, the church will be raptured up. Then there are others who believe that the church will be raptured, and that's what will inaugurate the Great Tribulation. So this idea kind of is you know, God's going to rescue us before things get really bad. I mean, that's a little oversimplistic, but that's kind of what they're saying. You know, when you look at all the horrific and scary and intimidating judgments and calamity and natural disasters and demonic, you know, oppression of the book of Revelation, most of us say, man, I would love not to live to see that. And so again, this rapture kind of says you won't have to. You will be taken up to meet the Lord in the air before the Great Tribulation begins, or at least before the worst of the Great Tribulation begins. And so again, that brings a, a great deal of comfort to people. Wow, I'm so glad I won't have to live through that. But again, my question is, is that really what the New Testament teaches? And again, just looking at the description of what Peter suffered, what John suffered, what Stephen suffered, what James suffered, what Paul suffered, you know, would they say, wow, I'm so glad I didn't have to endure that great tribulation as they were beaten and stoned and flogged and martyred. You know, to me, that's, that's pretty great tribulation. <laughs> you know, and then even as we just look at the treatment of the Roman Empire of, of, of born-again Christians, you know, what happened in the Colosseum, what happened on the, the, the road to Rome when Nero was... So, I mean, we've seen some pretty horrific things the church experienced. Um, interestingly enough, in the 20th century, there were more Christian martyrs than the previous 19th centuries combined. So, that was the worst century for Christian martyrdom in terms of how many Christians were killed for their faith. So, even if you're just kind of looking at experience, is the church really kind of dodging the worst of what's coming? Or in fact, by the grace of Jesus Christ, has the church been enduring? And will they continue enduring till the end? So the passage of scripture that I put down here is Matthew 24. And we've looked at Matthew 24 a couple of different times. And remember, this is what is sometimes referred to as the Olivet Discourse. This is Jesus talking to his disciples uh, just before he's going to be betrayed by Judas and arrested. So this is the last night of his life before he goes to the cross. 
He is, remember, answering sort of a, a muddled two-part question on the, the part of the disciples. Jesus says the temple is going to be destroyed. The disciples say, when is this going to be? And then when will be your return and the end of the age? So they're seeing those two things as a single event. But actually, Jesus is saying the destruction of Jerusalem and my return and the end of the age are two separate events. So this has its own set of significant challenges to begin with. But let's look together at Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. So here's what Jesus says. Immediately after the distress of those days. And so the context is Jesus has been talking about incredible distress and persecution and opposition that believers will be facing. So in verse 29, he says, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. So again, what Jesus seems to be speaking of is his return. What Jesus seems to be saying is that following a time of great distress, he will come. And when he comes, he will send out his angels to the four corners of the earth, metaphorical for the entirety of creation, and all of his elect will be gathered. So now if you're just reading that, do you get the sense that the church has been rescued from the tribulation? Or do you get the sense the church has come through the tribulation, and now Jesus has returned and is calling the elect to himself? Again, it's just, it's just a question. If you were reading that, how would you understand it? Would you see this as the rapture and that Jesus is calling the folks out and the tribulation is coming? Would you see this as, no, the tribulation has come and now Jesus is returning? So again, if you are assuming this, you have a certain way you would read this. Again, I know it's hard, but if you're not assuming this, would it seem more straightforward that, hey, there's going to be a lot of hard times, there's going to be a lot of difficulties, um, looking, let's just go back just a couple verses, going back to verse uh, 26. It says, see if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather together. So Jesus seems to be speaking to his disciples things that they are going to experience, things that the church in its entirety is going to experience. Then he talks about his return. And at his return is the gathering of all of his elect from the four corners. So again, all this to say that it seems like the tribulation that Jesus has been describing in the previous verses, not just the tribulation of the siege of Jerusalem, which he talks about, but the famines, the earthquakes, the wars, the apostasy, the... Uh, false Christ, the false um, prophets, all the things that we've looked at in Matthew 24, all of that precedes verse 29. All of that precedes verse 29. And so then he says, immediately after the distress of those days, it seems like what Jesus is teaching is, no, the church is going to experience tribulation. The church is going to experience 
persecution and false Christs and martyrdom and famine and earthquake and war and oppression and opposition. Seems to me that's what Jesus is teaching his disciples in Matthew 24. And then he comes. Comes in a way that is unmistakable. The two-part folks would argue that this is not the rapture. This is the second coming because he's coming in glory and power with his angels and he's gathering all of the elect. So to me, this is saying that no, we as the church should expect that until the return of Jesus Christ, we are going to have to navigate some really difficult situations. That's the way I would take it. But again, I'll pause there just to see if there's any comments or questions about that. All we're trying to say here is, does the New Testament indicate that the church is going to be raptured up before the nasty stuff starts? Or does the New Testament teach something different? Does the New Testament teach that, in fact, the church is going to be on earth for the nasty stuff and that Jesus is going to come? Then we're going to be taken up with him and he brings an end to the evil on earth. Okay? But again, I'll, I'll pause for comments or questions because I don't want to race through this quickly. So I do. Point, yeah, please. Um, so one concern I've always had um, is that often, I don't know, I, I, I think sometimes we allow what we, what we want or what we're afraid of or whatever to kind of drive what we believe. So when it comes to this business of, you know, pre-trib and post and all of that, um, without really having a sense of whether or not all the scriptures lined up, sometimes what I really do get a sense of is that people simply want to escape that suffering. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, right. I'll put my hand right up. Who <laughs> doesn't? But that, that sometimes it really does feel like that is what is driving that particular um, choice of belief for some people. Not all. I mean, I, I, I'm assuming and I, I believe you can not have that be the driving fear and come to the same conclusion. But, it, you know, it's just one of those things like for us to be aware of what's going on most deeply in our hearts. 100% agree with you. And that's one of the most interesting things is that, you know, and, and it's true for any point of theology. Oftentimes what we gravitate to says a lot about us as well as the truth of Scripture. And particularly, again, when it's not an issue that the church is in agreement on. You know, before the American Civil War, the majority of the American church was post-mill, which means that they believed that the, the church was going to grow, the kingdom was going to grow, and it was going to grow so much that the church was actually going to usher in the millennium. The millennium is this you know, glorious silver age where you know, there's so much more advancement and presence of the kingdom. And so before the American Civil War, the majority of the American church was post-mill. Very optimistic, very hopeful, very much believing that the church was going to bring the millennium on earth. Then the American Civil War came and obviously ripped this country apart. And what you see is after that, the theological shift. Because what happened is folks started to say, well, look at what happened. We're probably not going to bring in the millennium. 
I mean, we just lost 620,000 of our own citizens fighting each other. That's when there was a dramatic shift in American theology to premillennialism, which said the church is not going to usher in the millennium. And you look at some of the historically strongest, you know, American pre-mill theologians, they're the 1890s, early 1900s. Guys like Ryrie and Schofield and Darby, you know, the guys that really kind of set the foundation for a lot of this. And exactly what you're saying, Camille, it wasn't that all of a sudden they were reading a different Bible or that they were all of a sudden seeing passages they hadn't seen before. One of the most significant events was the American Civil War. And a lot of folks in the church just said, wow, things are not going to get better. <laughs> things just got horrifically worse for four years. And that's where they started to shift from being post-mill to being pre-mill. And nowadays, again, in American theology, post-mill folks are hard to find. There's very few of them. Almost everyone is pre-mill. And again, it wasn't so much like a re-examination you know, of new passages of scripture or a new theological discovery as it was experience. So what you're saying, I believe, is 100% true. And that's why we always, always, always ask the Spirit of God to lead us as we read the scriptures. Because we will always be, be bringing, to a certain extent, our own biases, our own experiences. But praise God, the Spirit of God is bigger than that. You know, the Spirit of God is bigger than that. And so he is always able to compensate for, you know, whatever our experience brings to the text. And of course, under his guidance and leadership, what our experience brings to the text and actually enhances the meaning of Scripture. So no, I really appreciate you bringing up that point, Camille. Um, anything else just about this passage of Scripture seeming to teach that the church will actually have to go through incredible tribulation before the return of Jesus Christ and not necessarily be rescued from it? Okay. The next one, basically, one of the strong arguments for a two-part return of Jesus Christ is, okay, if there's a single coming of Jesus Christ and Jesus is eventually going to make his way from heaven all the way down to earth, then why are believers who are on earth when he comes, why are they taken up to meet him in the air? In other words, they say that doesn't make any sense. If Jesus is coming down to earth, then why are believers being taken up to meet him in the air? And so what they argue is, when Paul talks about believers being taken up to meet him in the air, that's the rapture. Because the reason why they're being taken up to meet him in the air is to return back to heaven with him. Remember, the rapture is not a full coming of Christ to earth. He comes part of the way. The believers who are alive on earth, part of the passage that Sima just read, are raptured up or taken up to meet him in the air. And then all of them go back to heaven. So one of the arguments that folks who argue for a two-part say is, well, if Jesus is just coming in a single event all the way to earth, why are believers that are on the earth when this happens being taken up to meet him in the air? Why don't they just stay on earth and wait for him to come? And you can see how that's, you know, a reasonable argument. It is a little confusing. Well, I get taken up and then I come back down. But the question becomes, is it possible that in fact that is what the New Testament is teaching? Is it possible that what the New Testament is teaching is that Jesus Christ comes in a single event 
and there are believers alive on the earth to meet him. They are taken up to the air and meet him, and then they continue on to earth with him. Is it possible that that's what the New Testament teaches? Well, in this case, there actually is a word. So now we're doing what Richard says. We're taking sort of a, a deeper dive into a couple of specific passages to see if that is, in fact, possible that that's what the New Testament teaches. So take a look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. This is part of what Simo was reading before. We will read this passage in its entirety. We probably won't get to it tonight. But it says, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are still left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. I'm sorry, that was actually verse 15. But now verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive on our left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So again, what the two-part folks argue is that this is the rapture. Now again, part of the problem with that is that they argue that the rapture is a relatively unnoticed event other than the fact that all believers just disappear. You know, and what Paul says in 16 is, you know, with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. You know, to me, that seems to resonate more with lightning that strikes in the east and sees in the west that the coming of God will be, Jesus will be in great glory and power. You know, to me, if verse 16 is describing sort of a, a silent, unseen return of Christ other than the fact that believers disappear, I think that's a bit of a problem there as well. But now, well, what do we do with the fact that Paul says those who are alive are taken up to meet him in the clouds and are with the Lord forever? Well, here's the interesting thing. The word that is used there is the word apontesis. You see that there on the sheet. This is point C. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. The word that's used there to meet is the word apentesis. It's only used two other times in the New Testament. And so let's look at those two other times. Because for years I never knew this until I was reading uh, a guy who was writing about this and I saw this. I was like, oh wow, I never saw that before. So the first usage of this word that we're going to see is in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, Paul is making his way to Rome. He's had an incredibly difficult journey. He's been shipwrecked and, you know, stuck on an island and bit by a poisonous snake. And, you know, finally now he's, he's basically on his last leg of the journey to Rome. In Romans 28, 15, Luke gives us a very interesting detail about Paul's final stage of working his way into Rome. Acts chapter 28, verse 15. It says, The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us, Apentesis. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. Let's read the next verse. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So what was the nature of the meaning of the word meat that Luke is using here? There were some people in Rome that knew Paul was coming. 
They went out to meet him. And then what did they do? They all went into Rome together. Oh. So the word that Paul uses here is the exact same word. So is it possible that what Paul is describing is that as Jesus is making his way to earth, the believers who are on earth are taken up in the air to meet him and then continue down to earth with him. Let's look at the second place other than uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 that this word apontesis is used. Matthew 25, verse 6. And again, you may be familiar with this. Matthew 25, verse 6. This is the parable of the ten virgins. Remember, there are ten virgins who are waiting for the return of the bridegroom. And they all have lamps. Five of them are wise, brought extra oil. Five of them are foolish, don't have enough oil. But they're all waiting for the bridegroom, and the bridegroom is delaying. So they all fall asleep. But let's pick it up in verse 6. Matthew 25, verse 6. It says, at midnight the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. So the virgins go out and meet him. And then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. So how did the wise virgins meet the bridegroom? He was coming. They went out to meet him, and then they all went in together to the wedding. So if you look at the use of this word in extra-biblical literature, apontesis, what it meant was to go out and meet a dignitary who was arriving in your town. Now, you didn't go out and meet him and then go somewhere else. You went out and meet him, meet him and then came back into your city with him. So all this is saying is that one of the apparently strongest arguments that the two-part folks make in this reference is that why would believers be taken up to the air if they're just going to come right back down to earth with him? Well, in fact, it seems that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is teaching is that they do go up and meet him in the air using this word apontesis, which has the idea of people who are waiting some for, or someone. The brothers are waiting for the arrival of Paul in Rome. They go out of Rome, they meet him, and then with Paul together, they go back to Rome together. Or the parable of the virgins. The virgins are waiting for the bridegroom to come. So when the bridegroom arrives, they go out to meet him, and then they all go into the wedding together. So it seems that what Paul is saying is, in fact, that's exactly what happens. The believers who are alive on earth when Jesus arrives are taken up in the air to meet him. Not to go back into heaven with him, but in fact to continue with him in his return to earth. Again, does that make sense? Any, any comments or questions about that? I, I apologize uh, Carl went to the bathroom, so if one of you is on Zoom and you have a comment or a question, uh, you may have to, may have to hold it, because <laughs> I'm not going to try to mess with you. If I go over there and try to turn you on, you guys will all be disconnected. <laughs> so for the folks who are in person, does that make sense? Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, okay. So again, just the idea that is it possible 
that the New Testament is teaching a single return. And it seems like there isn't necessarily a lack of logic or a strained understanding to say that Jesus makes his way all the way to earth, but before he gets here, the believers who are alive on earth are taken up in the air to meet him, and then all of them continue down to earth with him. Okay? 1 Thessalonians 4 doesn't specifically say either they all go back to heaven with him or they all go back down to earth with him. You see, that's obviously why this is a little bit open-ended because Paul doesn't say either of those. All it says is that then we will be with the Lord forever, which is great because wherever Jesus goes at that point, we're going to be with him. So all this is saying is that this is not necessarily a strained or illogical way of understanding that passage of Scripture that believers do come out or come up from the earth to meet him in the air and then return with him all the way as he makes his way to earth. Okay? Were there any questions or comments on Zoom from that? Okay. The next is the idea that the coming of Christ is both a coming for his saints or his people and a coming with his saints. Because, again, what the two-part people argue is that the first coming of Christ, the rapture, is a coming of Christ for his saints. So at that point, he makes his way to earth, and he raptures up the believers who are on earth. So that is the coming of Christ for his saints. Then the second coming is when Christ comes with his saints. Because at that point, they've already been raptured up to heaven, and now they are coming back with him. So obviously what the single part or one part return of Jesus Christ has to argue is that the return is both. That the return of Jesus Christ is both Jesus coming for his saints and Jesus coming with his saints. And the way that we would explain that is the saints who have died have already gone to be with the Lord. Those are the ones who come with him. The saints who are still alive on planet Earth when he comes, those are the ones that he is coming for. So again, you don't necessarily have to split the return of Jesus Christ to make sense of the idea that some passages talk about Jesus coming for his saints and some talk about Jesus coming with his saints. The two passages that I list there, 1 Thessalonians 3.13 and 4.14, are both passages that talk about Jesus coming with his saints. Okay? So the two-part would say that's probably talking about this. You can add to that 1 Thessalonians 4.15 and 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Because in those verses, the Apostle Paul talks about those who are alive on earth when Jesus comes again. So all this is saying is that you don't necessarily have to split the return of Jesus Christ to have it be both an event where he comes with his saints and an event where he comes for his saints. Okay? Again, does that make sense? Any, any comments or questions about that point? Yeah, please, Abelia. Yes. Uh, I've been taught uh, before in another church that the, uh, 
the rapture, uh, when happens, is uh, those who die before are going to be uh, raised, raised up. Also, uh, I guess the elected ones going to with Jesus, they're going to be uh, in the air, right? So after that, uh, many people will uh, stay in, on earth, and uh, but uh, they still going to be saved. Is uh, is like called like a, uh, that and on the second phase, you know. First. Uh, some people will go to the elected one with uh, Christ, and then uh, Christ will come back to the earth, and some people say, oh, I've been told that the angel is going to be preaching to the people, the remaining people on earth, and they, they will be saved still after maybe after the three and a half years, because uh, those people who go through, uh, through uh, tribulation will still be saved, right? Uh, is that uh, right or not? Yeah, so again, I don't, I don't want to generalize and say everyone who adheres to a two-part return agrees on all of the details, but generally speaking, what they say is at the rapture, every believer who's alive on the planet at that point leaves. They are taken up to meet Jesus, and then they don't come back to earth, which is what we are arguing. They go up to heaven. So then all that leaves you on earth is unbelievers, because every true believer has just been raptured up and is now in heaven with Jesus. But what a lot of folks believe is that there will be folks during that time, whether it's three and a half or seven years. Again, there's some difference. Whether it's seven or three and a half, we won't argue about that right now. But yeah, absolutely, they do believe that some who are left, left behind, that was that movie that was made, uh, some who are left behind will in fact be saved. What, what some people start to do at this point is what really kind of makes me a little uneasy, is they say that Really what will happen now is that the people who are on earth who are going to be saved are all the unbelieving Jews. And that it's primarily the Gentile church who has been raptured up into heaven. And what they actually say is now at this point, God has two separate plans of salvation. He has a spiritual plan of salvation for Gentile believers. And he has a natural plan of salvation for Israel. And that's where, you know, to me... I start to think, wow, that's a little, a little bit beyond what I see in Scripture. And I'm not saying all of the two-part folks take it that way, but some do. Some absolutely say that now all the Old Testament prophecies about the nation of Israel are fulfilled on planet Earth. Natural Israel. They go so far as to say, if you or I, Abelio, as Gentile Christians are reading the Old Testament, any prophecy that speaks to Israel does not speak to you and I. What it speaks to is natural Israel after the Gentile church has been raptured. And that's, again, part of what got me t 
taking steps backwards and to say, well, if this is part of the foundation of that endpoint, that makes me pretty uncomfortable that there's two completely separate purposes of God for the Gentile church in heaven and saved Israel on earth. So I'm not saying everyone who takes a two-part approach believes that, but there are a fair amount who do. But I think, and I haven't read recently enough, I think there are those who wouldn't necessarily go that far, but I think they would argue that, yes, there will be some folks on earth who begin as unbelievers, because all the believers are taken up, who do ultimately get saved during the tribulation. Okay, maybe well, there we can apply the, the first will be last and the last will be first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Jew were the first one, right? <laughs> they were. Salvation was to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Right. And, and again, we looked at Romans 11. You know, Paul seems to be speaking of an incredible, you know, salvation event evolving natural Israel, and then the fullness of Israel will be saved. That's a very tough, but some people would take that to mean that, yes, at some point in the future, there is a great, great salvation awaiting natural Israel. Now, what I would argue is that is already taking place. That is already taking place in terms of the number of ethnic Jews that are accepting Jesus unparalleled in the church age. You know, Messianic Jewish friends that I had years ago were talking about just the incredible number of ethnic Jews that were accepting Jesus as the Messiah. So I don't think, again, it's only something that's in the future. I think it's something that we've already begun to experience. So, but again, what, what you bring up just reminds us that there are about a thousand different branches of this general scheme. And one of the ones that made me a little uneasy with this scheme is that incredibly distinct different purposes for the Gentile church, spiritual salvation in heaven, and Israel, natural salvation on earth. And then excluding Gentile believers from claiming as the people of God any of the Old Testament promises that refer to Israel. Because they would say, no, that's just for natural Israel on planet earth. So, yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Alex. Yeah, please. Good. We. Alex. Yeah, please go ahead, Alex. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks, Dave. Um, I found your explanation for um, the the return of the, those who already slept in the Lord, not. Um, not stronger convincing enough because the, those events will be occurring pretty much at the same time, separated probably by uh, uh, seconds, even not minutes, because it says that it will be at the sound of the trumpet that those who are dead in Christ will arise first, and then we who are alive will cut, be caught up with them and to meet with the Lord in the air. So I don't expect that he will be coming for them with them and then for us who are alive, because the timing of those events are really not different in many ways. It's just that one is happening seconds before or minutes before or whatever, but it's at the sound of that same trumpet. So I don't know what you think. 
Yeah, no, that's an excellent question, and I see we're over time here, so let me give a quick answer. To me, Alex, what, what we have to go back to is what we said, you know, what happens to the believer in Christ who dies before the return of Jesus Christ? And what we said is that the New Testament clearly teaches that we go to be with the Lord. Our body goes into the ground or is cremated or is lost at sea if we die at sea or whatever. You know, that, that, that physical death is our immaterial self, our spirit, our soul being separated from our material body. And what the New Testament clearly teaches is that at the moment that we die physically and we leave our physical body, we go to be with the Lord. So right now, every believer in Christ who is dead naturally is with Christ. So when Paul says that the dead in Christ will be raised first, what is he talking about? Well, I believe what he's talking about is the resurrection body. So that, in fact, what he's talking about is that those folks are already with Christ. That, that's what we believe. Paul says in Philippians, it's better by far if I die and go and be with Christ. In 2 Corinthians, he says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To the thief on the cross, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation sees those who have been martyred in the presence of God, crying out, how long? So what I believe Paul is actually teaching is that Jesus is coming with them. He is coming with all of the saints who have died in Christ, who have been separated from their natural body. They have not yet received their resurrection body even though they're in the presence of the Lord. So when it says that he, the dead in Christ will rise first, I think what he's talking about is the resurrection bodies. I think the idea is that they are coming with the Lord because they are with the Lord. They are with Jesus. They are not on planet Earth. They are with Jesus. You know, all of the saints that we can think of that have died with their faith in Christ, they are with Jesus. Their bodies are not. Their bodies are destroyed or in the ground or lost or decaying. Their bodies are not. So I believe when Paul says that the dead in Christ will rise first, what he's describing is the resurrection of the body. The dead in Christ will have their resurrection bodies raised to eternal life. Then those who are alive on the planet, still in their natural bodies because they haven't died, They've actually lived to see the return of Jesus Christ. They will be taken up to meet the Lord in the air. So then the next question becomes, well, what happens to their bodies? Because these bodies are mortal and decaying and frail and subject to disease and sickness. Well, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is that in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, those who are alive to meet the Lord at his return, our bodies will be changed. So that's the way I would understand that, Alex, is that what Paul is talking about is that the dead in Christ are those who are asleep in Christ, is the phrase he uses a couple times in, in 1 Thessalonians. They are already with the Lord. Their bodies are not, but they are. But they are awaiting the return of Christ so that they can receive the resurrection body. So that's what I think he's saying there. But we'll have to dive into that more because we are going to read in its totality that passage from 1 Thessalonians 4. One just quick thing to chew on. 2 Thessalonians 1, and we'll end with this. 2 Thessalonians 1, the passage I have down there is verses 6 to 10. But let's just read verses uh, 6, uh, 7, and 6 and 7. It says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. 
This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. So when are we as believers given relief from those who trouble us? When are those who trouble us punished for troubling us? Well, it seems to be what Paul is saying here is that all happens at once. Again, if you're not assuming a two-part return, does this seem to indicate a single return? Again, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. He will punish the wicked who are troubling and giving difficulty to believers. And he will give you relief. He's going to punish the wicked. He's going to give relief to believers. When is he going to do that? This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed in heaven. Believers are not going to be relieved from their trouble at a rapture, and then either three and a half or seven years later, the wicked are going to be punished. It doesn't seem like the Apostle Paul is indicating there's going to be a gap. Again, to me, the most straightforward reading of that is that this is a single event. At the moment when Jesus Christ returns, that's when we as believers are given relief from our troubles and suffering, and that's when the wicked are punished for the trouble and suffering that they bring. Okay? Anyways, I know we got a lot to chew on, and I, I want to say 100%. My goal in covering this is not to convince you to believe what I believe. I, honestly not. If at the end of this you are absolutely convinced that the return of Jesus Christ is two parts, I will love you and want to fellowship with you and really admire your study of Scripture. So please know my goal is not to try to convince you that I am right and you are wrong if you believe a two-part theory. What I want us to do is examine the Scriptures together. I want us to examine the Scriptures together. And I don't want us to assume things. As much as we can, I want us to search the Scriptures. And I want us to come as individuals, but also corporately, as living word community, to come to the most biblically grounded conclusions we can. Because that's what honors the Lord. But if we end up in different places on this issue, please, please know that I'm not going to think less of you, or I'm not going to try to convince you, or I'm not going to you know, argue with you. And if you catch me doing that, please call me on that. The goal of this study right now is not to try to convince you that a single return of Jesus Christ is right, and if you don't believe that, you're wrong. Not at all. The goal of this is to consider the scriptures together. And tonight it was to say, hey, look, if this is just what we're kind of assuming, because this is what the majority of the American church believes, this is what is taught in the majority of the American church, is this really what the New Testament teaches? Or does the New Testament possibly teach a different way of understanding this? That's all I want us to consider. Okay? And gosh, once we dive into the millennium, it gets even more fractured and complex, and the disagreement only intensifies. But at the end of it all, we should have two goals. Worship God and love one another. Whatever we're studying in Scripture, the return of Jesus Christ or what it means to be born again, whatever we're studying in Scripture, 
We should never, ever, ever lose sight of the goals. It should always lead to the worship of God, and it always should lead to a deeper love one to another. Whether we agree about these things or disagree about these things, we've got to make sure that we don't compromise those two things. Okay? So let me just close this with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much for giving us this time together tonight. And Lord, we thank you for your word because your word is perfect. There is absolutely nothing wrong with your word. The way that you have given it to us is absolutely perfect. And every bit of of misunderstanding or confusion or uncertainty has nothing to do with the perfection of your word. It has simply to do with how small and finite and fallen and sin-stained each one of us is. Because anything that we don't understand, anything that we're falling short in our understanding on, Lord, has nothing to do with a deficiency on your part or a deficiency in your word. Because you are perfect and your word is inspired and inerrant. And so, Lord, may we never lay any of this at your feet. But, Lord, also, as sisters and brothers in Christ, may we not be lazy May we do as much as we can to know you and to know how you have revealed yourself to us in Scripture. Lord, I thank you so much for the comments and for the questions. And I pray, Lord, that none of us would ever stop to dive into you, to dive into your word and to to seek you. And Father, I pray that it would not be any of our goals to try to prove that we are right and others are wrong or to try to convince just for the sake of winning an argument. But God, I pray that our goal really would be to to worship you and to love one another. But as we have discussion, as we consider questions, as we look at passages of Scripture, God, I pray that we would be drawn closer to you and closer to each other. Because, Father, as we look at living word, living word has always been diverse, whether it's ethnicity, whether it's financial background, whether it's education, whether it's age, whether it's these sorts of theological things. There's always been a diversity in living word. You have never wanted us to be identical one with another. And so God, I pray that we would always embrace the diversity because it delights you. It gives you great pleasure. And I pray that we would embrace that and walk in unity even in the midst of the diversity that we would not let our differences divide us because, Jesus, you died to make us one. You died for one church. There is one faith, one Lord, one baptism. May we always declare that more clearly, more loudly than any distinction there might be. So we, whether we are pre-tribs or mid-tribs or post-tribs or ah-mills or pre-mills or I don't have any idea-mills, God, may these things never ultimately divide us. May we have vibrant, dynamic discussions. But at the end of it all, Lord, may we worship you and may we love one another. And we pray these things, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Well, wonderful to be together on the schedule. The next time we are meeting is February 15th. February 15th. So we will finish up this nature of the second coming, and then we will look at the next sheet, the resurrection of the body. All right? But thank you all for being here. Thank you all, Zoom folks. Lord bless you all, and Lord willing, we'll see you soon.